I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 72 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. As the teaching ministry of Jesus comes to an end, the focus of Matthew shifts to his impending suffering and execution on the cross. The final days of Jesus are a juxtaposition between calculating, shrewd political maneuvering by the religious elite and uncalculating, lavish love by an unnamed woman. But these stories from 2,000 years ago can help us to keep perspective and focus in the midst of a turbulent 2020. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. That is Matthew chapter 26. On uh, March 16, 1962, uh, President John Kennedy was briefed by some of the highest military commanders. In their uh, top secret meeting, he was presented with a plan that would enable the US to invade Cuba called Operation Northwoods. If you're a little fuzzy on your world history, that's okay. Um, At the time, uh, Cuba was led by charismatic leader Fidel Castro. They were a newly communist country and one that was uh, allied closely with America's arch nemesis, the Soviet Union. Typically, uh, the the politics of small island countries are of little consequence to global superpowers, but Cuba sits a mere 103 miles off the coast of Florida. Its closeness to America was of great strategic importance to both the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Under the plan presented to the president, a multitude of options were given consideration. Uh, The U.S. could attack its own military bases to blame on the Cubans. They could shoot down U.S. planes by fake Cuban jet fighters. Uh, They could sink an empty U.S. warship and hold fake funerals for the fake soldiers or sailors on board, blaming the act on Cuban aggression. The U.S. US could even create domestic Cuban terrorists, explode a few bombs, and create outrage against Cuba by the American public. Why all this effort just to uh, justify invading a tiny island country that would prove no match to American military power? Because uh, the US was in a global PR battle with the Soviet Union, and they couldn't be seen as unjustly invading a tiny, weaker country. They needed a, a good reason to do so. And if you're thinking, dang, man, it's a sunny, nice Sunday. Why are you, uh, why are you hating on America right now? Um, let me just say that as a fan of history who loves to read about it and study it, that uh, this sort of behavior is a human behavior uh, that can be found in most any time period and culture. This isn't something that's unique to America. Uh, President Kennedy uh, ultimately rejected the plan in that meeting. And about 46 years after the plan was presented, I sat in a community college classroom listening to my political science professor describe Operation Northwoods. Uh, The plan, which has been uh, declassified and anyone can access it by Googling it, uh, was a shock to my system as a young student. Uh, I was a year or so into studying political science and Russian with the hopes that I would uh, eventually work for the CIA. Uh, I was also a year or two into following Jesus after having rejected him late in high school. And I had uh, this struggle in my mind between the ends justify the means of politics and the CIA and the way of Jesus. 
Up to that point, I had determined to compartmentalize my faith in Jesus with, with my career aspirations and political ideology. But after learning about Operation Northwoods, combined with uh, a growing understanding and awareness uh, that Jesus was king of my entire life, I let my aspirations of working for the CIA go. And then I did the next closest thing and became a youth pastor instead. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to be continuing on in our study of the first century biography of, of Jesus that was written by Matthew. And as we'll see tonight, this tension between politics and following Jesus is nothing new. So let's take some time to dive into the text before we talk about what it means for us. And let me just uh, pray really fast. Again, Spirit, we want to hear from you. Uh, we want to uh, know what you have for us in the scriptures tonight. Would you just calm our hearts and our minds help us to be aware of what you're up to. We love you. Amen. Now, look down with me at Matthew chapter 26, and we're starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Uh, so think back to the previous weeks. Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the coming kingdom, about judgment, and, and the kinds of work that ultimately matter to him and his kingdom. But here, Matthew is signaling that Jesus' ministry of teaching the crowds has come to an end. When Matthew writes, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, that's the signal. And uh, interestingly enough, we entered into studying Jesus' teaching ministry as a church way back on April 23, 2017. Uh, President Trump was newly inaugurated. Uh, the Me Too movement was soon to burst forth. And everyone was looking forward to Star Wars The Last Jedi, which ended up being the third worst Star Wars movie. Uh, what a year. Uh, we've been uh, studying the teaching ministry of Jesus for about uh, three years, and that's about the same length of time it actually lasted. Uh, Jesus will continue teaching his inner circle of disciples, but, but from here on out, we enter the, the passion of Jesus. The focus of Matthew shifts from Jesus's teaching to uh, the, the building tension and context of Jesus's suffering and death on the cross. His uh, impending crucifixion hangs over every scene from here on out. And for us, uh, the cross has become like generally domesticated and kind of emptied of its brutality and horror. So something that we need to constantly do is to remind ourselves of the fact that crucifixion was death. It was a death that meant horrific physical pain, the utmost hum humiliation and defeat and failure. And Jesus says it's going to happen to him in two days. Keep the weight of that reality in the back of your minds as we read the story, because it was certainly on Jesus' mind as he went through the next two days. Look down at verse 3 with me, because the wheels are in motion to show that Jesus was correct in his prediction. Verse three, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Uh, now, so, some context is helpful for us here because this is layered with political intrigue. So uh, bear with me as I nerd out for the next uh, few minutes, it's going somewhere. 
So Caiaphas was the high priest, meaning he was the leader of the Sanhedrin, which was Israel's top religious and political authority, something uh, kind of akin to our Congress. Caiaphas, we can surmise, was a very shrewd man. So this, this role of high priest had transformed about 150 years prior to this into a religious and political office. If you read about the high priest in the Old Testament, it was only a religious office. But when Rome conquered Israel, they began to assign the high priest. So before, it was a lifetime office that passed down specific hereditary lines and families. But when Rome began assigning the high priest, they gave little value to that tradition. And typically, the high priest didn't last long, maybe a year or two. Caiaphas was the longest reigning high priest during this period that we know of. He, he lasted in the role for 18 years. Again, that's impressive because generally people lasted a year or two. So he must have been a, a master at keeping Rome happy while navigating the animosity that most of the Jewish population had for Rome. So uh, if he got too cozy with Rome and and then the people would surely riot and, and Rome would remove you from office. If you get too cozy with the populace and their hatred of Rome, uh, that will inevitably lead to rebellion and national disaster. Never mind uh, the various religious groups within the Jewish population that had political aspirations and that generally distrusted and despised one another. So Caiaphas, being this cunning politician that he was, calls an ad hoc, unofficial meeting of the political and religious rulers to figure out how to deal with this Jesus character that was challenging their authority and who the people just had celebrated as Israel's rightful king when entering into the city. Jesus is a problem. He is a threat to their power, and Rome won't take too kindly to someone claiming to be Israel's rightful king over and against uh, their authority over Israel. So they decide to have Jesus killed away from the crowds that were in Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, Jesus was popular, and, and if enough people realized what was going on, uh, there was a good chance that a riot would break out. And again, if that happened, Rome could very well remove Caiaphas from power and even exact violent punishment on the population of Jerusalem itself. And uh, reading about this first century political intrigue this week, it, it sounded just a, at least a little bit uh, familiar to the protests that were happening this week in Portland at the Justice Center in response to the presence of federal agents and, and you know, the, the political posturing for the moral high ground by both sides. Uh, not much has changed with uh, humans in the last 2,000 years. So uh, with Jesus's prediction of his impending execution hanging in the air, uh, and, and the backdoor dealing and political intrigue surrounding him, the story continues. Look down at verse six. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. It's quite a uh, scene change uh, from the palace of the high priest to Jesus eating at the home of a leper, who we presume used to be a leper that Jesus had healed. But here's Jesus doing what he typically does, uh, spending time and valuing those who are thought of as possessing little value to the wider culture. 
And being known as Simon the leper would have kind of been like being known as Simon the meth addict or Simon the mentally unstable. Uh, people our society typically avoids and looks down on, unfortunately. Um, it, it's not endearing. It's humiliating to be known as the leper. But for Jesus, Simon is worthy of relationship and intimacy. That's, that's what eating with someone, being hosted at someone's house meant. Jesus still doing Jesus kinds of things, even with his impending execution. And now enters a woman, uh, unnamed by Matthew, but, but don't miss the prominence and importance of women in the story of Jesus. His life begins centered on a pregnant teenager. His passion story begins with a woman, this unnamed woman, and his resurrection is discovered by women. Uh, the, the part of women play that, that women play in the story of God is critical and prominent. And this woman in particular is highlighted all the more by the preceding narrative of, of death and intrigue and the story of betrayal that's, that's going to come a little bit later on. Uh, this unnamed woman takes a jar of perfume something that was very fashionable and a status symbol at the time, and quite possibly even a family heirloom, and she dumps it all over Jesus' head. It was common that a, a host of a dinner party would anoint their guest's head with oil, but, but perfume was bringing it to the next level. And so it seems like an extravagantly nice gesture by this woman. But let's keep reading. In this story, look down at verse 8. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. The disciples are ticked at what this woman just did. Why? Uh, well, Matthew doesn't specifically say how much this expensive perfume is, but from the other gospels, we learn that this perfume costs a year's worth of wages. So this thoughtful act by the woman shifts from being uh, nice and a thoughtful gesture to being wholly impractical and egregiously wasteful. And, and let's try to sympathize with the disciples for a minute. Um, this woman just dumped out the equivalent of a year's wages, so let's say $50,000 worth of perfume on Jesus' head. And Jesus, back you know, at the end of, of Matthew chapter 25, had just finished teaching the disciples on judgment and how the care for the poor and needy are works that God will judge. The disciples are, are being pragmatic and sensible. Jesus didn't say he would judge people based on how much perfume they sacrifice for God. I mean, think, of, think back to when Jesus fed the 5,000 people. This is so much money that it could have fed that entire crowd. Why in the world would this woman just have wasted this perfume? Let's keep reading to see Jesus' response. Look down at verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured out this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
The disciples' complaints were actually brought to Jesus, but he hears of them and confronts the disciples. He asks, why are you bothering this woman? And, and bothering is, is a bit of a tame translation. Some commentators translated it as, why are you humiliating this woman or why are you harming this woman? But Jesus quickly affirms and honors this woman by calling her act a beautiful thing to me, a beautiful thing to me. Jesus reminds the disciples of the teaching in the Torah uh, that there will always be poor people. And, and some, some have taken this out of context in a really egregious way in order to, to teach that caring for the poor uh, doesn't matter to Jesus, which uh, not only takes Jesus' words out of context, because remember uh, at the end of chapter 25 last week, it also takes the teaching of Jesus referencing uh, the, the teaching that he's referencing in the Torah out of context. In the Torah, this teaching was then followed by the command to always be generous to the poor, the point being that there is never an excuse not to care for the poor. But Jesus balances out the high importance with caring for the poor with direct gestures of love and adoration for him. For Jesus, there is importance, value, and even overlap in both of these. Jesus appreciates and values acts of love and adoration that do not meet a social justice pragmatism a care and concern for justice without a love for Jesus that is expressed and experienced is functionally a secular humanism. It's a belief system of what is good and what isn't good for humanity that rejects any need for God. The way of Jesus is both passionate uh, for justice and passionately in love with the person of Jesus. And the act of this woman pouring all of her expensive perfume on him is, is reinterpreted by Jesus. The, the woman's intention was most likely not to anoint him for his impending burial. It was most likely done out of gratitude and devotion and love for Jesus. But Jesus gives her impractical act an even greater significance than what she intended. As Jesus had said, he was going to be crucified. Jewish people who were crucified were not given normal burial rites. They would often be buried in a co common, unmarked grave. Our culture typically doesn't value a person's body after they've died, but in Jewish society, treating a dead person's body with respect and dignity by anointing the body and giving it a proper burial was incredibly important. It would be painful and embarrassing and unsettling for a loved one not to have a proper burial. So Jesus honored and held up the woman as an example of love and adoration and worship. Her impractical, even wasteful act has become something considered beautiful that has taught and inspired the church for 2,000 years. But as I alluded to earlier, Matthew squeezes her story between two scenes of political intrigue. Keep reading with me in verse 14. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. I think the role Judas plays in this story has also kind of become tamed over time. So let's try to allow the impact of this to hit us. 
Judas betrays Jesus. Judas, who has walked, eaten, slept, listened to, conversed with Jesus every single day for three years. Judas, who was supposed to carry on the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus to future generations. Judas, who has cast out demons by the empowering of the Spirit, who has seen Jesus walk on water, who has seen Jesus calm storms and raise the dead. Judas betrays Jesus. And he does it for a fraction of the cost of that perfume. That's what Jesus is worth to Judas. The backroom dealing and sinister intentions of Jerusalem's political and religious elite have discovered a way to kill Jesus without causing any rioting. Judas will be the informant who ensures there's opportunity and no confusion or mistakes. Why would Judas do this? There's some theories. Uh, disillusionment, maybe, with Jesus' impending death. Uh, maybe anger at being rebuked over the unnamed woman's act. Uh, maybe flat-out greed. Maybe even a misplaced hope that if he forces Jesus' hand, that Jesus will knock off all of this crucifixion talk and finally become the general king Judas assumes the Messiah will be. And at the end of the day, we don't know for sure what motivates Judas. But what we do know is Matthew is a brilliant author. These stories by themselves, they, they teach us things. But these three stories together teach us even more through contrast and irony. Jesus knows he's going to be executed. He's blunt about it. He speaks openly about it. And the disciples still don't seem uh, to be grasping it. Caiaphas and the religious elite plan in secret what Jesus has already said would happen. Uh, they plan to kill Jesus for political expediency and with all intentions of avoiding upsetting Jerusalem and Rome. And what they end up doing is playing their part in the most uh, important historical event that has impacted and upended the entire world. The disciples who have been with Jesus know him and are known by him, who are to carry on his teachings and lifestyle, rebuke a woman who lavishly loves Jesus, revealing their inadequate perspective and appreciation for him. For Judas, Jesus is some sort of problem, but at least a problem that he can profit from. The lavishness of the woman is contrasted with Judas's own estimation of the worth of Jesus's life. The, the two stories of political scheming and betrayal and shrewdness is contrasted with the overflow and the over-the-top love and worship and adoration of the unnamed woman. It's uncalculated love versus calculating political motivations. And for us tonight, uh, I think this has a lot to say. Uh, if you haven't noticed, we are in an election year. Um, if you haven't noticed, we've been witnessing uh, the tension, uh, political and social and otherwise, of the fallout of addressing racism and systemic injustice. 
Uh, we're caught up in the politicalization of a global pandemic. A microscopic virus has become the place to claim moral superiority and high ground over others. Uh, quite frankly, uh, it can be exhausting. And even if you keep your eyes off the ever-updating news feed, which you probably should, by the way, uh, there's little doubt uh, that there's a, a parent or sibling or coworker or neighbor who is uh, saying things, who's posting things that are antagonizing and extremely frustrating, even hurtful and degrading to you. And then there, there can be a constant buzz in the back of your mind uh, of the possibility of coming under someone's seething judgment. Oh, you're not going above and beyond by wearing your mask while you sleep? You're a murderer. Or you're weak and foolish enough to follow the law and wear your mask in public? You sheep. Oh, you didn't attend a protest? It's a good chance you're an irredeemable raging racist. Or you, you attended a protest, you're a pathetic, low-life, cop-hating anarchist. And as followers of Jesus, uh, we take seriously that Jesus commanded us to love our neighbors and our enemies, to turn the other cheek. And I know that we're all just figuring out how to do that well right now. Many of you are working through just how to do that with loved ones, family members, what have you, navigating the frustration and hurt and disappointment. But don't forget the greatest commandment as taught by Jesus. Love the Lord your God. Love him with all your heart. Love him with all your soul. Love him with all your mind. Love him with all your strength. Love is a more robust term than just a subjective feeling. It has to involve actions that are loving. And, and there's been a, a strong reaction against a type of emotionalism in some church circles. Um, it's kind of a reaction against a belief in Jesus that ebbs and flows on the felt experience of Jesus. So, you know, you're feeling heavy and bad. Well, you must have some sin that God is unhappy about. God seems distant. Well, find out what's wrong with you and fix it. Oh, you're feeling light and happy. Well, God actually does love you. you. You must have no sin in your life that God's angry about then. And, and the reaction against this is to be suspicious of emotions, especially in your apprenticeship to Jesus. But love for God isn't devoid of feeling love for God. To love someone is both action and feeling. And that sounds obvious, but I just wanna make sure we understand that when it comes to, to loving God as well. The unnamed woman, she, she understood it. Her lavish act towards Jesus speaks to her love for him. She loved him with something precious and costly. But for us, uh, you know, it can be pretty hard to translate what the woman has done into what we can do, into you know, a tangible act of love. Because, you know, Jesus is here in spirit, we absolutely believe that, but he's not here in bodily form. So we can't dump perfume on him like this unnamed woman. Jesus has taught that to care for other people, especially the poor, is in some real significant sense caring for him. 
But in the story of Jesus, or uh, but in this story, Jesus makes a clear distinction between what the woman has done and caring for the poor. So, what if we thought of the cost of perfume not in terms of money, as in not in terms of a year's wages, but thought of it, thought of it in, in terms of time? This woman poured out the equivalent of a year's time on Jesus. The equivalent of a year of good, hard work lavished on Jesus out of love. Time is really precious and valuable to us. Maybe, maybe that teaches us better. Because we can choose to make time for Jesus. That's in our control. We can wake up early or stay up late reading the scriptures, praying, hearing from God, and allowing him to speak over us. We can choose to make time to participate in community and church in whatever ways we're able to. We can choose to make it our aim to learn to see every moment of our lives pregnant with the reality and the potential of God at work. Doing these sorts of things isn't anything new to our church. We talk a lot about the spiritual disciplines. But uh, have you thought that maybe Jesus sees you doing them as a beautiful thing? That your quiet time, your Bible reading, your listening prayer means more to him than it does to you. That he sees it with more significance than you do even on your best days. Uh, if you're here tonight or you're, you're watching uh, or you're listening to this, and just over a stretch of time, you've been struggling with a sense that Jesus is not satisfied with the time or devotion that you've been giving him, um, specifically that no matter what you do or how much you do it, you have a belief that you should or you need to be doing more. And this belief is just hanging over your head and, and, and your relationship with Jesus, it's stifling you. Let this picture of Jesus sink into your heart and your mind. Maybe you do need to make a change here or there, but don't think Jesus doesn't value your acts of faithfulness and love towards him, even if they are imperfect. If love takes action and feelings, how can we love Jesus with our feelings? Uh, typically, we have a lot less, if any, immediate control over how we feel. So uh, we can choose how we respond to our feelings, but not typically control the feelings themselves as they arise. So at, at times, we can also uh, tap into things like curiosity to kind of turn down the intensity of our feelings, but they have, to, they have still arisen, they've still been felt. So what if you don't feel love towards Jesus right now? What if you haven't for a while? Is that normal? Is something wrong with you? I just wanna share maybe a couple potentially helpful things for you to know. Um, generally speaking, nobody actively, consciously experiences feelings of love towards Jesus every moment of every day. So it's like spiritual giants of, of church history like St. Teresa of Avila or St. John of the Cross, they certainly didn't. Um, and using the language of union with Christ, Teresa even wrote that the longest she had experienced this uninterrupted was about a, a half an hour. 
And she was essentially a, a professional praying person. She was a nun. <laughs> so make sure your expectations are realistic. And something practical for you to take into consideration is that psychologically, it's easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. If you are waiting to do loving acts towards and for Jesus, like reading your Bible and silence and solitude until you, you know, feel like it, out of some desire to be authentic, you're kidding yourself. I love you, but you're kidding yourself. Those sorts of actions bring you closer in intimacy with Jesus and will help you experience feeling, feelings of love towards Jesus. It's not realistic to expect or believe that every act of devotion and obedience to Jesus must have a felt experience of love with it or else it's not genuine. But beyond realistic expectations and beliefs, there are things like your mental health. Um, if you're struggling with anxiety, trauma, depression, bipolar disorder, what have you, that will affect your feelings. That can hinder how you experience feelings of love towards Jesus. And that's a big reason why we uh, have a recommended counselors list and consistently encourage people to go to therapy. Mental health is important to your apprenticeship of Jesus. And if this is hitting home to you right now, I really encourage you to go and talk to somebody and uh, have somebody that you trust be uh, your accountability partner in that, that you will go and reach out and find a counselor. Something, something else that can uh, um, affect your feelings of love towards Jesus can be something called the dark night of the soul. That sounds super hardcore if you're not familiar with it, but in essence, it's a process of the spirit at work in you where God doesn't feel close, where things can lose their excitement or interest to you, where there is a sense of fogginess and uncertainty about what exactly God is up to. Feelings of love towards God are harder to come by, and instead there's often pain and sadness and confusion. And... Uh, that's actually where I find myself in this uh, season, which is a little funny now that I'm teaching about feeling love for Jesus. Uh, for me, it started about a year and a half ago, and it has ebbed and flowed in that time, but about two or three months ago, the experience of the dark night intensified. Um, God hasn't provided much obvious emotional comfort. Um, his presence has been rarely felt, even as I study the scriptures and even as I do listening prayers, even when I hear from his spirit or even when I go about my work day, I rarely feel his presence. And don't get me wrong, <laughs> I'm aware that I'm like standing up here dressed in all black, talking about deep, dark feelings. But really, uh, my life has been fairly stable and, and good, all things considered. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, I still have my job. My life has slowed down and I've really enjoyed spending time with my wife and my two little girls. But God seems distant. And the experience of my spiritual life is much more about painful absence than something like joy and peace. But thankfully, there's wisdom of church history that we can look back at. Um, if I'm right that I'm uh, experiencing the dark night of the soul, I, I understand that it's a season, even though it's painful, and that God is ultimately doing something good in me. 
Maybe something like pushing back the ways I try to sinfully to control things and people in my life. Maybe pushing back a spirituality that looks to God to just make me feel good. And it's hard, sometimes very hard, to sing a song of praise to Jesus. Um, Sometimes it's painful to read a psalm of David that speaks of God's closeness. And in this season, to not have hardly any experience of that myself. But I do those things. I sing to Jesus. I open the scriptures because I love Jesus and I trust him. If you think you might be in a season of the dark night of the soul, uh, maybe you're not sure, uh, I'd, I'd just love to talk to you about it. So grab me after the gathering or if you're watching this or listening to this, shoot me an email. I'd love to talk to you. But whatever your situation is, okay? So uh, for us, uh, for 2,000 years, one of the most consistent times of loving God with actions and feelings for a follower of Jesus has been during times of worshiping Jesus through singing. Every time we meet in person on a Sunday, we sing songs of worship, expressing love and gratitude and awe towards Jesus. Um, But it's unfortunate that when we allow distractions to mute those moments with Jesus, when the band we don't like takes us out of the mood, quote unquote, uh, to worship, or you know, embarrassment about being too expressive, or perhaps right now it's singing with a mask on. And, and let me assure you, um, we know that meeting together on Sundays like this feels different. Feels a little bit foreign, it feels a little bit uncomfortable. It's, it's sad that we can't have kids church yet. You know, we're, we're not trying to pull the wool over, you know, your guys' eyes and pretend like this doesn't feel different, because it does. It's not like it doesn't take more effort to push through everything to hear from God and to experience him through singing or the scriptures or communion. We get it. But please listen to me. We do not get these moments back. We can't redo this gathering. We have to choose that we will take advantage of these moments to lavish Jesus with our love and our worship. We have to choose to overcome self-consciousness and uncomfortable masks and what have you to adore Jesus. We get to believe that even in all of its imperfections, our, our, our worship is valuable to Jesus, that maybe when we push through and choose to worship him, that it means more to him than it does to us. Jesus, help us to learn from the unnamed woman and lavish you with worship and love tonight. Amen. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.